Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now CERTA. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. Phillipsburg, New Jersey and Easton, Pennsylvania are right across the Delaware River from each other. Easton was an important location during the American Revolutionary War due to its proximity to the river and having one of the few ferry crossings into New Jersey. George Washington stored ammunition and supplies in warehouses there. Both Phillipsburg and Easton grew when the Morris Canal connected them to New York City in 1829. The canal was replaced by rail lines in the 1900s, and the area remained the location of manufacturing for many well-known companies. Charles Cullen grew up with and continued to live with severe depression. When he began working in the healthcare industry, he thought that helping others would be what he needed to turn his life around. It turned out that all he wanted to do was infect others with his misery, and he accomplished that by killing their loved ones. This is Monsters. Charles Cullen was born on February 22, 1960, to Edmund and Florence Cullen. He was the last of eight children and was what he described a late-life mistake. His seven siblings had been mostly grown by the time he was born. They were a working-class family who lived in West Orange, New Jersey, just northwest of Newark. Edmund was a bus driver and he died on September 17, 1960, when Charles was only seven months old. This left just Florence to support the family, which included some of Charles's adult siblings as well. Some of his brothers suffered from drug addictions, and his sisters would return home when they were pregnant or in need of financial assistance. 
Florence did the best she could with sewing jobs and church charity, but the house was a chaotic place. Charles said he was regularly bullied in school and by his sister's boyfriends. Charles attempted suicide the first time when he was only nine years old. He had gotten a chemistry set from the church charity box and mixed the chemicals together. He downed the mixture and chased it with a glass of milk, but only succeeded in making himself sick. On December 6, 1977, Florence died in a head-on car accident, but the hospital didn't tell Charles she had died when they called. He went to the hospital and was searching for his mother before he was finally told she was dead. They had already taken the body away and she was cremated so he never saw her again. After that, he attempted suicide for a second time and was hospitalized. He was sent to a psychiatrist where he refused to talk and the doctor seemed to just give up and send him home. When Charles was 18, he dropped out of high school and joined the United States Navy. Charles saw the Navy as the most passive branch of the military and felt like he could be heroic with the least chance of dying. He's said to have done well in basic training and passed the psychological tests that qualified him to serve on a submarine. Charles became an electronics technician working on the Poseidon nuclear missiles the sub was armed with. Oh, good. Soon, Charles realized that he didn't like the Navy. It was mainly the whole taking orders thing that seemed to not suit him and he spent a good amount of his enlistment being punished for refusing to follow orders and being knocked down in rank. One day, his commanding officer found him sitting at the controls for the Poseidon missiles, wearing scrubs, gloves, and a surgical mask. Charles never did explain what he was doing or why he was dressed that way. He was removed from service on the submarine, though, effectively removing his access to nuclear weapons. His new assignment kept him above the surface and he basically worked as a janitor. He would drink as much as he could, sometimes even drinking Listerine when he was out of booze. At the beginning of 1984, he downed a bottle of cleaning fluid and went to sickbay. Charles was sent to the hospital and then to the psych ward for evaluation. He was medically discharged from the Navy soon after. In March of 1984, Charles became the only male student at the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey. He did well in school and became the class president. He worked a number of part-time jobs in order to support himself through nursing school. One of those places was a Roy Rogers restaurant where his manager was a woman named Adrian Baum. Adrian was a college graduate with a degree in business but needed the job in order to pay her student loans. When the two began dating, things moved fast. In 1987, six months after their first date, Charles and Adrian got engaged. Adrian hadn't met any of his family besides one brother. While she and Charles were still dating, his brother James died of a drug overdose. They're not sure if it was accidental or a suicide, but Charles seemed unaffected by it. His other brother Edward was having trouble dealing with the news and when he called Charles highly inebriated, he let him come over and sleep on their couch. Adrian saw him that one time and once again at their wedding. That incident took place a week after Charles graduated from nursing school. Charles immediately got a job working in the burn ward at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. The couple cut their honeymoon at Niagara Falls short by one day so he would be able to make it to his first day of work. In October of 1987, Charles and Adrian bought a small house in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, and Adrian started a new job as a computer programmer. With Charles working the night shift, their schedules were opposite, so they quickly grew apart, eventually sleeping in different rooms. 
This wasn't before the couple had a daughter in the fall of 1988. Working in a burn ward is a horrific job. It being Charles's first nursing job out of nursing school couldn't have made it any easier. There were patients in the ward that the nurses knew would not make it. They would stay in the ward where they would slowly and painfully die. Maybe this is what compelled Charles to begin doing what he was doing. In early 1988, Charles killed a patient who was dying of AIDS with an overdose of medication. It's not known who he was or what Charles used, but he claimed that was his first murder. On June 11, 1988, Charles killed 72-year-old John Yango with an overdose of lidocaine. John was a municipal court judge in Jersey City who was being treated for a severe sunburn, and it was believed that he died from Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is a rare skin condition. The hospital staff noticed that Charles was acting differently and they knew he had been drinking, but due to the stresses of the job in the burn ward, it wasn't unusual. It wasn't until the beginning of 1991 that anyone reported anything suspicious. One nurse found an IV bag that looked like the port was used, but the bag was so full it was actually leaking. When the bag was tested, it contained saline and heparin, which is what it was supposed to contain, but it also contained insulin, which wasn't supposed to be there. Three days later, on February 14th, Anna Byers was placed on an IV drip of heparin in preparation for heart surgery, and within an hour, she was sweating, confused, and nauseous. The nurses found that her insulin levels were high, so they gave her an IV of dextrose, which counteracted the insulin. Her surgeon decided that she wasn't stable enough for surgery, so the nurses removed the heparin drip. Anna began getting better within minutes. A little later in the day, it was as if nothing had happened. Anna was perfectly fine, so the nurses put her back on a heparin drip so they could get her into surgery. Then her insulin spiked and she started to crash again. This time, they unhooked all of her IV lines and rushed her into the ICU, but by the time they got there, she was already getting better. In a nearby room, the same thing started happening with another patient named Fred Belf. The nurses realized that the common denominator was the heparin, and they sent the bags for testing. Those bags also came back positive for insulin. A closer inspection of the bags showed near-microscopic needle marks on the perimeter of the bag. Someone had intentionally poisoned multiple IV bags in the supply room. These findings were taken to the hospital's security and they opened an investigation. All of the nurses were interviewed and all of them were cooperative except one, Charles Cullen. He refused to talk to them so they dug deeper and compared mortality rates to the times before and after Charles had started working there. They found the number of patients that crashed and died had increased significantly since Charles had begun working there. Even though they tried to catch him in the act, they weren't able to. They put a camera in the supply room, but still, two more patients crashed with high levels of insulin, which was found in their IV bags. Hospital security didn't know how they were going to stop Charles, and they were trying to formulate a new plan when he simply stopped showing up to work. Coincidentally, though totally not coincidentally, the insulin spike stopped when Charles stopped working there. Now, of course the hospital wanted to make sure that Charles couldn't just get a job at a different hospital and start poisoning people again, so they made sure to warn other hospitals, right? Nope. Within two weeks, Charles had applied for a job at Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, and he listed St. Barnabas as his past work reference. St. Barnabas made no attempt to warn Warren Hospital about Charles. 
Charles told the interviewer at Warren that he was changing jobs because he was looking for a shorter commute, and they bought it. He was offered the job right there at the interview. This position paid more, so now Charles was getting more money to endanger the lives of his patients. He worked day shift, so he and Adrian were able to see each other more often, which seemed to rejuvenate the relationship. For a little while. Things were good long enough for Adrian to get pregnant with their second daughter, but then it went downhill again. Charles started drinking heavily and became physically abusive. Adrian decided to file for divorce in November of 1992, and she was in a hurry to get the paperwork done. She was scheduled to go to Warren Hospital for gallbladder surgery soon, and she wanted to make sure her reason for divorce was documented. See, even though Adrian didn't know that Charles was actually killing patients, she was still afraid that being a patient in the same hospital where he worked would give him the opportunity to harm her. That's pretty bad. Her father took her to the hospital and made sure he was with her at all times before and after her surgery. Unfortunately, the divorce paperwork was delivered to him at the hospital while he was on shift, so of course he stormed over to Adrian's room to confront her, but his soon-to-be ex-father-in-law wasn't about to let him in. When Adrian was released from the hospital, her father went home with her and slept on the couch, but eventually she and Charles agreed to share the house until he was able to move out. That didn't work out as well as they'd hoped, and when Adrian called the police and reported that he was being abusive, she also went on to tell them about how he was investigated at his last job, and she believed he abused their pets. Charles responded by swallowing a bottle of pills and washing it down with wine. Charles ended up in the hospital and then in a psychiatric facility. After he checked himself out, he met with Adrian's lawyer and worked out the details of the divorce. Now Charles was living in a basement apartment, and once he was back to work, he quickly began pursuing another woman, a fellow nurse at Warren Hospital. After one dinner date, Charles was in love, and he was sure that they were soulmates. He brought her presents every day, even coming in on his day off to see her and give her treats. When he showed up with a ring and professed his love, she knew that it was too much, so she began distancing herself. Charles took that as a sign that she was depressed and needed him now more than ever. He called her house but got her machine, so he called again, and again, and again. She must have gone to her ex-boyfriend to discuss this new development because he eventually called Charles and told him to leave her alone. Again, this only made Charles believe that she needed him even more. This is the delusional thinking of a stalker. The idea that a person doesn't want to be with them is so impossible that they must be suffering from some mental health issue that only they can cure. Charles began calling her and then driving the 40 minutes to her house to see if she was home. When he saw a light on in her house and her car in the driveway, he would race back home, afraid that she was calling him back while he was out. When he would show up back home and see no messages on his machine, he would assume that she must be in some sort of trouble, since there was no way she could be home and not calling him back, right? Charles drove back to her house and broke a sliding glass window before sneaking into her bedroom and seeing that she was alive and well. Then he snuck back out and left. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? 
Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. When Charles called the woman he'd been stalking the next day, she answered and he confessed to breaking into her house. Charles got a call from the local police explaining that she had reported him and he agreed to turn himself in. He popped a handful of pills and drove himself to the police station, intending to collapse in a jail cell and get attention. Except they didn't put him in a cell. They asked a few questions, fingerprinted him, and let him go. Now he was standing in the parking lot, about to pass out. He got in his car and tried to drive, but couldn't, so he pulled over and called an ambulance. Charles was taken to the Greystone Psychiatric Hospital, where he soon recovered. Charles didn't want to die. He wanted to be seen as a victim in order to escape the times when he was seen as a bad guy. While he was still at the psychiatric facility, Warren Hospital called him there, not to fire him, but to find out when he could come back to work. Charles returned to work at Warren Hospital, though he had a restraining order keeping him from contacting the woman he had been stalking. In that case, he attempted to represent himself in court, but was in way over his head and eventually gave up and pleaded guilty to harassment and defiant trespass. He was sentenced to five years probation. He represented himself in the divorce proceedings as well and didn't do much better. Adrian was granted a final restraining order against him, and due to his history of suicide attempts, she got full custody of the kids. Charles decided that the only place he had control over anything was at the hospital. Helen Dean had been at Warren Hospital to have breast cancer surgery and she was recovering well. She was scheduled to be discharged the next day when Charles loaded a syringe with a large dose of digoxin. He went into Helen's room where her son, Larry, had been with her every minute of her stay at the hospital and told him he needed to leave. Charles injected the drug into Helen and left. When Larry returned, the nurse was gone and his mother said, He stuck me. Helen pointed to the spot on her inner thigh where she had just received a shot and Larry notified the doctor immediately. Since the doctor hadn't ordered any injections, he suggested that it might just be a bug bite. The next day, Helen's condition was deteriorating and eventually her heart stopped. She died the day she was supposed to go home. Larry knew something was wrong, so he questioned hospital staff and found out that the nurse that had come into his mother's room was Charles Cullen. He contacted the prosecutor's office, and the next day Charles was questioned about the incident, but he denied everything. The medical examiner tested the area where the injection mark was, but the results were negative. That's because they tested for almost 100 different chemicals, but not digoxin. Charles was put on paid administrative leave while they investigated the situation. 
He went home, took a bunch of pills, and called 911. He made sure to leave the door unlocked for the paramedics. By the time Charles was back out of the hospital, the prosecutor was ready to interview him. He continued to deny any involvement, so they had him take a polygraph, which he passed. This is because, though a polygraph does measure your physiological response to lying, which can be used to determine when someone is lying, it doesn't always work. Some people believe their own lies or don't have a problem lying, so they don't show any physiological response when they do. So where a polygraph is based on how a human body can work, the human body is too unpredictable for it to be a reliable investigative tool. There was no evidence that Charles had killed Helen, and the hospital wasn't even suspicious about the other two patients Charles would eventually confess to killing. At the beginning of 1994, Charles decided not to go back to Warren Hospital and ended up getting a job at Hunterton Medical Center in Flemington, New Jersey. Again, his previous employers said nothing about his history of mental illness or that he was suspected of murdering patients. While working there, Charles began dating a fellow nurse who had separated from her husband. This seemed to keep him on the straight and narrow for a while, but when she broke up with him to reconcile with her husband, Charles spiraled downward. Charles started out at Hunterton as a star employee, but now he was constantly being written up for medication mistakes. What his supervisors didn't know was that they were intentional. Charles killed five patients with an overdose of digoxin between January and September of 1996, and his supervisor was starting to notice a pattern. She pulled Charles aside and told him that if it happened again, he would be fired. So, you suspect that a nurse is killing people and you don't call the police? You threaten to fire him if he kills another person? What. The. Fuck. Why on earth did Charles' employers seem to care so little about making his actions known? Because that meant lawsuits. Hospitals are common places for litigious activity. Patients are ready to sue over any indiscretion by doctors or staff. Making it public knowledge that they had a nurse on staff tampering with medications and possibly causing deaths would open a floodgate of lawsuits, so they kept it a secret. Hospitals have been known to keep a doctor who is harming patients on staff out of fear that they will sue the hospital for wrongful termination. This fear of lawsuits seems to supersede the safety of the patients. The doctor or nurse gets to go practice somewhere else in order for their secret to remain, well, secret. So when Charles was threatened with termination, he said, screw that, I quit, and he had no problem getting another job. He went to work at Morristown Memorial Hospital, where he was fired after less than a year for poor performance, involving failure to administer the correct medications to patients. In February of 1998, Charles worked at Liberty Nursing Home in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which was his first job in another state. He had gotten his Pennsylvania nursing license a few years prior. Here, he was accused of giving patients medications at incorrect times. In October, Charles went into a patient's room and tried to inject them, but the patient fought them off. Despite being caught with syringes on him and breaking his patient's arm in the struggle, Charles was not reported to authorities. He was merely fired. He easily found work at both Easton Hospital's Intensive Care Unit and Lehigh Valley Hospital's Burn Ward. At Easton Hospital, Audemars Schramm died of an overdose of digoxin and Charles was suspected, but there was no conclusive evidence. At Lehigh Valley Hospital, 22-year-old Matthew Matern died of an overdose of digoxin, but it wasn't connected to Charles. 
He quit working at Lehigh and got a job working at St. Luke's Hospital, where he would later admit to killing five patients. In 2002, another nurse found empty vials of digoxin in a garbage can and started looking into why they were there. Digoxin was not used recreationally and had no street value. When the vials were tracked, they came back to Charles. The hospital made him a deal that he could resign and be given a neutral recommendation, or they would fire him. Again, being suspicious of him taking drugs and killing patients, and this was their outcome. So Charles resigned and continued working as a nurse. Some of the other nurses at the hospital reported their suspicions to the district attorney's office, but the case was eventually dropped. Eventually, though, the management at St. Luke's did report Charles's activity to the Pennsylvania State Nursing Board, and they opened an investigation. By that time, Charles was already working at Somerset Medical Center. His access to digoxin was limited, so Charles improvised with another of other drugs, making his time at Somerset Medical Center his most deadly, at least in terms of confirmed deaths. Over the course of one year, he killed at least eight patients with overdoses of norepinephrine, sodium nitroprusside, and insulin. Staff at Somerset Medical Center became suspicious of the patients' deaths and began looking into them. They found that Charles had accessed records for patients he wasn't assigned to, and the automated drug dispersal machine had logged him as taking a number of medications that his patients didn't need. Still, they waited months before actually addressing the issue, allowing Charles to kill at least five more patients. In October of 2003, Somerset Medical Center finally went to the authorities with their suspicions of Charles. Police pulled his employment records and found that he either had no wrongdoings documented or his employment files had been destroyed. Then they went to St. Luke's and found a number of staff who all said the same thing. Charles had killed patients with an overdose of digoxin. He tried to cover his tracks by requesting the drug from the dispensing machine, then canceling the order after he took it to make it look like an error. Eventually, Charles was fired from Somerset, and they turned his employment records over to the police. Charles Cullen was arrested on December 15, 2003. He initially refused to talk, but they had a fellow nurse that he had become friends with come into the station and talk to him. She lied and told him that they were also going to charge her as an accomplice if he didn't tell the truth. Charles gave in and admitted that since 1988, he had fatally dosed 30 to 40 patients, a number that authorities believe is low based on the randomness of his attacks and his lack of memory. He claimed to have been spiking IV bags with insulin at St. Barnabas three or four times a week. He could remember John Yango and a young AIDS patient, but that was it. There was no way to verify how many victims there were from that time period. He admitted to three murders at Warren Hospital, five murders at Hunterdon Medical Center, one at Easton Hospital, seven murders and three attempted murders at Lehigh Valley Hospital, five murders at St. Luke's, and 13 murders and two attempted murders at Somerset Medical Center. Charles Cullen pleaded guilty to 18 murders, and as part of his plea agreement, the prosecutor wouldn't seek the death penalty in exchange for his cooperation in identifying his victims. Over the course of a number of trials, Charles was sentenced to 18 life sentences. Charles told people that he killed in order to end the suffering of the patients, but some of his victims were improving and even about to be released from the hospital. Some were in no pain at all, and some of his victims were chosen at random. At the end of the day, nobody knows for sure why Charles did what he did. 
His estimate that he killed 30 to 40 people is a guess, as he doesn't remember a lot of the time frames in question. Due to this case, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and 35 other states have adopted new laws that encourage employers to give honest appraisals of a worker and give employers legal protections when they do. A lot of murders could have been prevented if the hospitals had been more worried about patients than themselves. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.